Hello and welcome into BTN's Take 10 Podcast. This is Alex BTN.com, and this is another football-focused edition of the Take 10 Podcast, which we do every week during college football season, bringing a national writer to give us a perspective on not only the Big 10, but the national landscape of college football. And if you've been paying attention, we've done it every week throughout uh, not only this season, but last college football season as well here on the Take 10 Podcast. So unlike the last few weeks, we do not have a writer from The Athletic on this week's episode. We actually uh, have Mitch Sherman from ESPN.com. We were on a little roll there where we had, I think, three straight guests from The Athletic. But we uh, pulled Mitch from the Worldwide Leader to jump on and break down what was a very significant week in the Big Ten and a week that had some national implications as well. That was week five. And we look ahead to week six in college football. We're really getting into the uh, middle of the season here, rolling toward first college football playoffs rankings coming out at the end of the month it's officially october spooky season and that means college football is really in full swing and um, we got into heavily into the ohio state penn state result from this past weekend ohio state's one point comeback win in happy valley definitely shifted the outlook um that was you know looking like penn state was going to to come away with that win and potentially knock ohio state out of playoff contention Ohio State might have salvaged their season with a late comeback win, uh, a one-point victory over Penn State, just like in 2017. So we got heavily into that game, uh, not only with Mitch Sherman, but also with our stat head, Harold Shelton, who joined us for our weekly stat head segment. He is our uh, BTN researcher, if you haven't listened to these football focus episodes before, and he joins us each week during football and basketball season for a stat head segment. So those interviews with Mitch Sherman of ESPN and Harold Shelton of BTN are coming up in just a moment. And before we get to those two discussions, I just wanted to give a couple of reminders like I do in every episode here of the Take 10 Podcast. One, to remind you where you can find the Take 10 Podcast if you are not subscribed already. You can go ahead and subscribe on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Podbean, and you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, our Big 10 Network YouTube channel, where there's a playlist featuring all of the latest Take 10 Podcast episodes. So definitely subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Leave a rating and review if you like the show. And leave some feedback, uh, which is always appreciated, either in my mentions on social media or on those podcast services. So appreciate that. All right, so like I said, we'll start off with Mitch Sherman of ESPN.com. He's uh, based out of Omaha, Nebraska, so he's definitely plugged into the Nebraska program. We talk a little bit of Huskers. Look ahead to... Big Ten and national schedule in week six, and we recap all the important stuff from week five as well. So without further ado, it's a Take 10 podcast discussion with Mitch Sherman. Very pleased to be joined by a national college football writer for ESPN.com. It is Mitch Sherman, and you can follow him on Twitter at Mitch Sherman. Mitch, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, good to be here. How are you? I'm doing great. And um, before we get into what happened this past weekend in college football, I want to lead off with this since you're based in Omaha and you went to Nebraska and you worked at the Omaha World Herald before ESPN. Is it some weird kind of twilight zone out there in Nebraska right now where they're almost looking forward to basketball season more than the rest of football season out there yet? <laughs> yeah, you know, there's been some conversation um, among the media in Nebraska. And uh, I've been to two of the four Nebraska games this year. I uh, didn't expect to spend a whole lot of time in Lincoln after the uh, after the Scott Frost debut, which turned out to be two weeks of debuts, one without a game, and then the game against Colorado, which was pretty compelling. And I thought, 
uh, I thought was was uh, it bode, that it boded well for the for the way the season would go, despite being a a loss for the Cornhuskers. But uh, obviously, things have have taken a a different turn since that uh, September eighth game. And 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 yeah, I mean, it's a it's a good thing for Tim Miles and his basketball program that that people are excited about that season. And it's of course a bad thing for for the, <laughs> for the I was going to say the university as a whole. And I think that's that's fairly accurate. Um, there there is so much invested in that football program in Lincoln, um, but it's it's uh, unfortunate for sure for Scott Frost and his program that they're looking at the uh, at the season that that seems um, you know to be destined to happen now after an 0-4 start. Yeah, and I want to get into that situation a little more in, in, in a few moments here. And that was a game you were in attendance for, so we'll definitely dive in a little bit. But before we do that, I want to get your kind of initial impressions about the Big Ten as a whole this past weekend. And since one game was so much more significant than the rest, I'll kind of turn this into a question about Ohio State's 27-26 win over Penn State. I'm sure, uh, you know, even if you didn't get to watch all of that, that you're up to speed on it. So what are some overarching takeaways from that game and the implications of Ohio State's victory? Yeah, I saw I saw basically the whole game. And, you know, in, until – until the end, I, I think the the far and away the number one thing to talk about coming out of that game was Trace McSorley and how well he played. You know his ability to, to to run as a quarterback and not just not just run but run against that Ohio State defense. Um, I think he used their aggressiveness a little bit against against them, uh, but at the, at the same time, for him to, to find as many lanes as he did and, and get and get through so much outside of the pocket and still be an effective thrower. Um, you know, it's too bad that more people still aren't talking about Trace McSorley uh, after that game just because of, because of how well he played. But, but you know, Dwayne Haskins on the other side was outstanding in those last two drives. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm probably going to come away from that thing thinking the most about those two quarterbacks um, and, and what they did. Um, somewhat about Ohio State's defensive line and the ability to uh, to fill in for Nick Bosa with, with – um, the injury that that um, that he suffered here in the past couple of weeks, but um, I mean, I think it, it it firmly vaults Ohio State up into the category of being a, a favorite for the college football playoff now as we go into October. Yeah, and it was almost like watching that game, like deja vu with Penn State having that two score lead right. in the fourth quarter, and I really can't believe that. They took a two-score lead, double-digit lead, into the fourth quarter, and then again, Ohio State comes back in the final minutes to win by one. And Do you think that says more about that Ohio State program and those guys, many of which were there last year in that same situation, those guys rising to the occasion to top Penn State, or do you think it, it says something about uh, Penn State's inability to hold on in those situations more so? Well, I do, th- I do still think there's a hurdle to clear for Penn State. And it's it's uh, ascension as a program, and you heard James Franklin address that after the game about about uh, the difference between a good program and a great program, and what it takes to be on the level of Ohio State. And um, you know, Penn State clearly has 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 risen to a high level, um, but I think it's shown in in those in recent games against Ohio State, certainly the last couple in um, in state co- in you know in state college. That uh, you know, there's there's still there's still one more little step to take, or maybe it's a big step still to take to uh, to get over the hump and, and believe in the fourth quarter that you can do what you, what is necessary, that you can do um, you know you can put that final nail in the coffin against the the top dog in the Big Ten. So um, you know, 
the, the, the last two years, I, I think, are are indicative in, in, in this game. The last two years are indicative of where these two programs are. And they're they're very close. There's there's not a whole lot that separates them. But what's put Ohio State over the top is that that belief and that confidence that they've had in the fourth quarter. And it was on display again Saturday night. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up James Franklin's kind of great but not elite comments in that postgame presser. And aside from finally kind of conquering that that demon, that villain that is Ohio State, for them, what what can they do other than not losing by one in the final minutes and, and losing these fourth quarter leads? Is there something they can do even this year to reach that level that James Franklin talked about uh, achieving? Yeah, I think that answer can be simplified, uh, maybe oversimplified, just to say that they need to take, they need to be willing to go out on a limb and take more risks. You know, I think you can look at the at the the. The, essentially the last play in that game, the last play of significance in that game. And you can, you, you can maybe read too much into that, but I think it's an important, it's an important statement too about not just the kind of belief that the players have, but, you know, James Franklin, I think was, was as much as, as he was trying to send a message to his players and to the Penn state fan base, you know, I think he's frustrated with himself a little bit too, in the way that they, they handled the end of that game. They could have done they, you know, they could have done more than just attempt to hold on to the lead. They could have attempted, you know, to put that thing out of reach. And by the time it got to that fourth down call, you know, I think Penn state had, um, well, it, it, it had been a while since the Ohio state comeback started at that point. And the roles had been established. And Ohio State was the aggressor in the fourth quarter after Penn State grabbed the lead. And that, that's the way it played out on that fourth and five call. I know there's a lot of people that wish he would have been more aggressive, that he would have put Trace McSorley out on the edge of that defense and given him a chance to be able to make a play. You know, watching Monday Night Football this week, and it seems like everything goes back to Patrick Mahomes in the world of football. But uh, Trace McSorley had a kind of Patrick Mahomes-like presence for Penn State in that, in that offense on Saturday night and you know the way that he's used in in his role with the Kansas City Chiefs is you just put the ball in his hands you let him move and you let him make a play and I think if McSorley had been given that that uh that kind of freedom Penn State would have been a lot more likely to uh you know to continue that drive right there all right well said and I want to flip it now to the winners of that game Ohio State and I know you mentioned how you believe they're a uh favorite to reach the college football playoffs certainly in the Big Ten at least, but I want to kind of extrapolate uh, a little more from that game, if possible, and, and I, I want to ask, what's an encouraging, or what's the most encouraging thing you saw out of Ohio State, if you're an Ohio State fan, even though they looked uh, not great and they struggled for three out of the four quarters there, what are you taking away from that game as a positive and uh, knowing that you got out of there with a win? Well, you talk about, uh, or I talked about, um, the, the absence of Nick Boson, it sounds like the Buckeyes are going to be without him for a while. The way that Chase Young played, and we know that Ohio State has talent on the defensive line, but I, you know, at least in my mind, there was some question about whether they had a dominant guy to come and rush the passer. Clearly, clearly, I think we know the answer to that question now after the way that Chase Young played in uh, in, in Happy Valley. So, you know, they're going to miss Bosa for sure. And, you know, if there's a way to get him back when they when they're in the postseason, um, you know, his his uh, there's there's not any worry about a guy like that and like preserving a year. You know, you've got the four 
the four-game redshirt uh, rule this year. I don't think that impacts Nick Bosa at all. That guy's going to be in the NFL as um, as soon as the opportunity arrives. So if he's able to come back and perhaps play in a bowl game or play in a Big Ten championship game, then I think that's something that, that, that just makes Ohio State stronger at that point. So if they're able to develop some things on the defensive line without him and then you have him back at the end of the year, um, that makes them all all the more scary. And, they, and you know, clearly they're developing – other stars, um, the, the the talent is there on that defense, and and, and Haskins uh, on the offensive side for Ohio State. Um, I mean, he had been tested; uh, he was tested against TCU, but clearly had not been tested like that, where it was a fourth quarter in a hostile environment. The TCU game wasn't a hostile environment for Ohio State, even though it was in uh, the Dallas area and, you know, essentially a, a home game from a location standpoint for TCU. It was not anything like at all like what he saw on Saturday night. And, and his play in the fourth quarter, I thought, was a a real, real positive for Ohio State going forward. And then you just have to wonder when you look at at the Buckeyes, you know, where are the challenges going to come between now and, and the game against Michigan uh, on, the, on the weekend after Thanksgiving? I, I don't – I really felt like, you know, if Ohio State was going to slip, and not even so much slip, but get beaten by a better team or an equal team, it was going to happen uh, last week. And now that they've made it past that, I think that they can they can work on things within that team, work on finding um, receivers uh, that that Haskins can develop a better relationship with, and just be a beast by the end of the year. I mean, they're already there, but uh, to think about the weeks of development that they have ahead of them is a scary thought for the rest of the Big Ten. Yeah, in regards to Haskins, I think he, you know, Benjamin Victor made a great play to get them within one score, but the way he led that 96-yard drive. Really said a lot about him and, and his potential going forward. And like you said, he rose to the occasion when challenged. And I want to get a little bit more into the discussion about Ohio State's potential path to the playoff. And I know it's still really early and there's still a month until the rankings even come out for the first time. But we kind of talked about it, how not only did this one-point result, a win over Penn State, happen last year. This year they're in a position where they don't have that early season loss to uh, in Oklahoma. Yeah. They beat TCU. And we'll see if they get caught napping like they did at Iowa last year. But kind of to your point, do you think that they can legitimately be challenged in the Big Ten East? Is Michigan State or Michigan going to pose a threat? And then even beyond that, do you think whoever comes out of the West, and it's looking like Wisconsin uh, is in position to do that, do you think there's a legitimate challenger throughout the rest of the Big Ten to the Buckeyes? Well, to address your question first out of the West, not what I see right now. Wisconsin may be may have things shored up um, in, in, by the end of uh, the end of November, and you know I'm not going to doubt a Paul Christ coach team w- with its ability to to rise up in a one game spot. There have been times in the past where it seemed like Ohio, uh, Wisconsin was overmatched, whether it was a game against Ohio State or another Big Ten East opponent, and the Badgers have that ability to play really well in a one-game situation like that. So they're clearly the favorites in the West after the win over Iowa a couple of weeks ago at at Kinnick at night. Um, And and I would assume that they're going to continue to grow and get better and and as as the year goes on um, and be that team to to face Ohio State at the end. And anything can happen there in that in that one game situation. So that's definitely something that poses a risk for Ohio State. And, and you know, it, it'll be interesting to see how those two teams grow over over the course of this time that where, 
you know, they're, they're, they're both going to have some challenges. I mean, of course, Wisconsin's got Michigan on the schedule and as, as does Ohio state, of course, but, um, yeah, I, I don't see in the East outside of that Michigan game on November 24th, you know, maybe Michigan state, but I, they've not been overwhelming by any stretch. They're another team that will, will likely be able to rise up and, and, and go, uh, you know, give give Ohio State a challenge, but I think by that point in the year, you know, you've got Indiana, Minnesota, Purdue, Nebraska. Before they they get to that point where they, I think, really have to worry at all about being challenged. Um, I, I, I this is not one of those years where I think Ohio State is in danger of going into the Michigan week with the with a loss. I think they can. I think that if they, they you know they avoid an injury to a key guy like Haskins and. Uh, or another one on the defensive line, and they're going to be in real good shape in, in the middle middle of, or late November. All right, I want to take a little bit of that Michigan discussion and carry it over with some analysis from last weekend's performance at Northwestern. And I want to know what you made of that Michigan performance. I know you were on the ground at Lincoln, but I'm sure you saw yeah. that they went down 17-0 yeah. to Northwestern in that first half before squeaking out a win. Um, do you have any overall takeaways from that? You, it's kind of carrying on that trend where they've been dominant against inferior competition, but then can't seem to carry that over once they have an opponent that challenges them a little bit. So what are your thoughts on this continuing trend Wolverines have kind of presented under Jim Harbaugh here? Well, that was classic Northwestern to begin with. So I wouldn't put it all on Michigan having a letdown um, in the week after a, a dominant performance. That was that, that, that. That's what we've come to to expect out of Northwestern. You start to play better as it gets toward the middle part of the season. Um, there have been a lot of disappointments already for Northwestern this year. Not the first time they've struggled out of the gate, um, and then put things together. And what it remains to be seen, of course, if if Northwestern can build on that. But I wouldn't say that was all a Michigan thing that happened on Saturday. I think Northwestern played well to build that lead and then just didn't have a running game to rely on um, without Jeremy Larkin to, to, to be able to nurse that thing and, and, and kind of salt it away against the Wolverines. Um, but, yeah, I mean, clearly Michigan didn't, didn't play its best game. I'd say good for them and good for Jim Harbaugh to have Shea Patterson, a guy who could bring them back, and, they, and that they didn't panic when they were down 17 to nothing, and they didn't, they didn't throw, you know, you know, throw away their game plan, that they, they were able to see that there was enough time left in that game. Now, Michigan had so much to lose already with the loss there on their schedule this year, you know, albeit out of the Big Ten. That's, a, of course, a program that has big expectations and big aspirations every year. And you, you, you would have been essentially eliminating them from anything on the national level with a loss last week at, at Northwestern. So uh, they, they, you know, they, they, they stood up to that challenge and, and uh, you know, I don't, I don't put a lot of stock into saying, well, is Michigan maybe not the team that we thought they were at the start of big, big 10 play because they, they snuck out of uh, Northwestern with just a three point win. I mean, Hey, a win on the road in the big 10 is a, is a win. So um, whether you're, you know, unless you're playing, I suppose at, at Rutgers uh, otherwise, you know, you take a three point win and you're happy with it and you move on to the next week. And, you know, I think that's what Michigan's doing. And I, I don't, I don't uh, view the Wolverines a whole lot differently or any, any, any lesser light because they, uh, they were taken to the wire by Northwestern. Yeah, I agree. I think there's good things to take away from both programs and that game in Evanston. I mean, if you're Northwestern, you got to like the response after a couple of really tough losses. Losing also, starting running back to an unexpected uh, ailment. 
And then Michigan, like you said, surviving against a program and a team that really can muddy the waters and and, and even the playing field. So uh, definitely well said on that front. And then I want to move on now before uh, looking to the national scale and the national stage. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Purdue and Nebraska. Obviously, Purdue got out of there with a 42-28 win. Nebraska fell to 0-4. And once again, after the game, Scott Frost kind of gets up there and says how, you know, this isn't going as smoothly as he envisioned. He commented about how the players look like they're loving losing, pointed out them dancing on the sideline. So what's the overall level of angst on the ground there with Nebraska's 0-4 start? I think there's a lot of angst within the program. I think there's a lot of frustration um, around the program, among the fan base. Um, I think there's also a level of patience and understanding that's that's uh, pretty unique for a team with Nebraska's uh, tradition that has started 0-4 with a new coaching staff. You know, they've they've put everything into um, the Scott Frost movement, the, the 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 whole Nebraska program, the state, the entire fan base, the athletic department, uh, the university. They're they're all in on this, and there's they're not going to let a you know, a, a bad start to a season, a bad month, or even in ba- a bad entire 2018 season derail the, the the confidence and the belief that they have that Frost is the guy to turn this thing around. Um, you know, I think there's a case to be made that in all of the upheaval that's happened at Nebraska over the past 15 to 17 years, um, with, with you know coaching change, coaching three coaching changes before this one, that there's never really been uh, a, a full um, burn this thing to the ground and start fresh attitude. I think that the coaches that have come in uh, have attempted to build on on <clears throat> what they had, and I think they've experienced at least in the case of Bo Pelini and, and a little bit with Mike Riley in his second year, they've 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 experienced some some success that maybe wasn't built on the best foundation and now the frost has started the way that they have i think they've realized and it hasn't been masked as much as it may have been in a different situation if they had opened against akron and gotten a win there and then played well against colorado and gotten a win there and say maybe they were two and two or even three and or but i guess they would have played five games they were three and two instead of oh and four you may not have some of the things going on within that program that you do right now because they're in full burn this thing to the ground mode and start completely fresh. And sometimes, as as Frost said on Monday, um, you need to do that in order to build a strong foundation. So I think Nebraska's placing a lot of eggs right now in that basket that it's going to be bad in the short term in order to be better in the long term. And it's a you know it's a it's a valid um, way of thinking. Um, I don't think it necessarily had to be like this. I think there are cases throughout college football of coaches coming in, new coaches coming in and building strong foundations without going through um, just a, a terrible season at the beginning. But there's also a lot of cases of, uh, of seasons like this that have happened at, at the start of a, of a coaching regime and, and that, that have that coaching regimes that have gone on to uh, experience some pretty good things. So, you know, only time's going to tell if uh, if that's truly what's going on at Nebraska right now. But, uh, you know, you, you continue to see the, the mistakes pile up for Nebraska on the field. The penalties are just um, are just really, really bad as far as the numbers <clears throat> that are occurring and, and the times in the games that they're that they're happening. And Purdue was there on Saturday to take advantage and get a really nice win for Jeff Brom 
in that in that program. And I think Purdue is back in the mix now as a team that uh, you know after an zero and three start can can look to build on what was obviously a surprise success a year ago in Brahms' first season and, and get back to a bowl game, which would be uh, you know a, a, a great achievement after starting zero and three. So. Um, you know, it's there, it's there for Purdue and it's not there for Nebraska right now. The, uh, you know, the preseason expectations, at least outside of the program of seven or eight wins and Scott Frost's first year are, uh, are clearly gone at this point for four games into the year. Yeah, definitely didn't want to take anything away from Purdue, who's really rounded nicely from that 0-3 start and has settled on a starting quarterback, David Blau, who's looked really good. But I did want to touch on one more story out of Lincoln this past weekend. How about... Cade Warner, Kurt Warner's son, going from a you know right. walk-on wide receiver to a starting spot, and he uh, actually recorded his first two receptions with his dad in the stands this past Saturday. Yeah, his mom and dad were there. Kurt and Brenda, extremely uh, familiar faces uh, in the in the stands at Memorial Stadium um, to see Cade's first start. And he's an interesting story, and I'm sure one that will get told a lot this year and then over the coming years if he continues to build on what, what's a, a good start to his redshirt, personally at least, a good start to his redshirt freshman year. He's a walk-on from Arizona who was a great high school player in, uh, at Desert Mountain High School in Scottsdale, Arizona, set the, uh, the, the all-time 11-man high school football record in Arizona for receptions in his career, caught 35 touchdowns as a high school player, but wasn't viewed as just a, as a high-end talent um, at receiver. You know, he's not the fastest guy in the world. He's not the biggest guy in the world. But, uh, you know, considering his pedigree and uh, who his father is and what his father overcame, you know, just about the best story of, of, of rising from the ashes in football that you can find in, in you know, in close to NFL history. Uh, it's not really a shock that this kid comes in with, with uh, a chip on his shoulder and has done what he's needed to do as a walk-on to impress th- this, uh, this first-year coaching staff, earn his first start last week, and then go out and make a couple of catches. I think uh, Adrian Martinez to Cade Warner is probably going to become uh, a fairly common uh, refrain in Lincoln over the next uh, couple, three years at least. So that's a, that's a story that uh, is a positive one for Nebraska. Uh, in, in amid this 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 Owen four start and for sure a familiar name to football fans everywhere. Yeah, for me it was fun to see Kurt Warner just on Twitter, kind of going through the ebbs and flows of the game as a parent, and not you know this is a guy who's been to the the mountaintop of all of football, and he's still you know just agonizing over a Nebraska football game, which was enjoy enjoyable for me to see just from afar. But uh, yeah, like you said, a cool story that we'll definitely keep an eye on going forward. Um, I want to move on now to the national scope of college football this past season and what we saw and I kind of want to start with the Clemson and Syracuse result because I saw just scrolling through your Twitter timeline you had uh, a lot of retweets about the implications of the four and done transfer rule that's kind of emerging here and nowhere is this playing out more significantly than at Clemson where Kelly Bryant was a starter uh Dabo Swinney goes to Trevor Lawrence then he gets injured forcing uh, the former third-string quarterback to come in and Clemson almost falling against Syracuse. So how significant off the bat do you think is this problem that Dabo Swinney has on his hands now where Trevor Lawrence is hurt and Clemson might be vulnerable now to uh, uh, you know, a loss that can derail their season? Yeah, I think they've dodged a bullet. Um, It seems this week that the uh, diagnosis or the early worries about a concussion to Trevor Lawrence, the true freshman uh, standout, 
uh, were, were um, you know, they, they, it, it's now been downgraded to, to just uh, the likelihood that, that he experienced a neck strain. Um, clearly, they did the right thing at Clemson on Saturday by not putting him back in the game, even if there was some thought that, that it was not a concussion. He had some concussion-like symptoms, so he was going to stay out, and that's, uh, you know, that's a good thing and a change that we've seen in football over the last few years, uh, change for the better, to not put a player back, back in harm's way like that when there's a concern. So, so, but, but uh, you know, Clemson going ahead is going to have its quarterback. Um, at least they're going to have that quarterback. They're not going to have Kelly Bryant. He is uh, uh, gone um, from this uh, from from the picture uh, permanently at Clemson, and and that brings uh, into focus the the issue that you're talking about with um, essentially as as Hunter Renfro, the the uh, talented and veteran Clemson receiver, put it this week um there's something of uh it, or at least it feels like there's something of a uh, a trade deadline now in college football where uh you get to to week four or week five whenever a given team has played four games and you start looking around the locker room or you look around uh the, the you know the campus and and you know everybody's uh a little bit on edge as to whether there's going to be be movement um I, I think as the years go on you know this is just the first year of this thing and barring some kind of a, a modification to that rule i think as the years go on you, you're you're going to see those numbers increase. There were three or four instances here in the last week or so where players transferred. We may have another one or two trickle in um, if a player, you know, missed a game and is, is sitting at four by by, by early October. Um, but I, I think in years to come, this is going to be something to really consider when I, when I, when uh, when everybody's played their fourth game. Okay, who's who's gonna who's gonna transfer? And Kelly Bryant is the uh, the most prominent example of that this year. It's really hard to blame him. Um, you know, the rule is there and he's taking advantage of it. He wasn't going to be the starter for the rest of the season, barring uh, the kind of injury that we almost saw on Saturday to uh, to Trevor Lawrence. Um, and, you know, he wants to be able to have a chance to play quarterback at the next level. The best way for that to happen is him, for him to have another year to start. And he's already graduated, so he can uh, he can go ahead and, and be a grad transfer, recover this year of eligibility, and go be a, a starter somewhere else next year and give himself the best shot to uh, to play uh, at the, at least to get drafted in, into the NFL. So um, I, I sense, uh, and we're in the early stages of, of this, of course, but I sense that when when we get into that legislative cycle at the end of the year, um, as the coaches meet in January and the NCAA convention happens uh, shortly after that time, that there's going to be a discussion. I don't know if there's going to be a, a change to the rule, but there's at least going to be discussion about what to do here. You know, do you allow only the younger players, maybe players who were in their first or second year to take advantage of that four game redshirt rule? Um, or is there some, some way else to, um, you know, to, to kind of stem this from, from becoming a, a bigger, uh, a bigger issue in the sport? I know coaches don't want to see, um, dozens of players around the country who all of a sudden are, are, are sitting out and, and, and declaring their intentions to transfer at the end of September. That's, uh, that's kind of a mess. They were, they were largely, almost unanimously in favor of this redshirt rule because it allows teams to, to cultivate more depth throughout a season and to, to do things to prevent injuries. But uh, this is a somewhat of an unintended consequence that I think will be addressed on some level in a, in a, a legislative way after the 2018 season. 
Yeah, such a nuanced issue because I generally fall on the side of the players and having more freedom for student athletes. But again, like you said, I I don't really want to see a trade deadline of sorts play out in college football. So I'm interested to see how they go about remedying this. And uh, I do want to kind of segue that discussion between Clemson and Syracuse. Uh, first of all, by giving credit to Dino Babers at Syracuse for putting together a program that has not only beat Clemson, uh, challenged them twice, almost uh, took them to the brink of, of beating them twice in two years, and uh, transitioning into a discussion on Notre Dame because Syracuse is on Notre Dame's schedule going forward. Notre Dame took care of Stanford pretty handily this past weekend, and they are a team now that's in the discussion uh, as a potential college football playoff contender. So I want to get your thoughts on you know what to make of Notre Dame overall and if their schedule is tough enough to warrant a, uh, a bid, especially if some of these – other powers keep winning. Yeah, I, I just I have a really hard time seeing Notre Dame at twelve and zero not getting into the college football playoff. I feel like the powers that be in the sport would just would not create a system that that that, that leaves out a twelve and zero Notre Dame team. And I've heard from fans at Georgia this week, as I, I myself and Kyle Bonagura, who's on the West Coast, we do our uh, ESPN's weekly bowl projections, and you know they're they're almost a joke to try to put those things together in August and, and early part of September. But once you get four or five games into the year, you know, those things start to take a little more shape. And, uh, you know, this week I have Notre Dame in the playoff for the first time. And, and that's, that's, you know, I, I don't necessarily think that Notre Dame is going to win out, but I think their chances of being 12 and zero are better uh, than a lot of other teams because they don't have to play in a conference championship game, of course. And, you know, the, 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 despite playing tra- traditionally a strong schedule, um, they've, they've made it through uh, a fair amount of the tough games. They've made it past Stanford. They've made it past Michigan. Um, they've got a tough one, which, which may be the toughest game left on, on the Notre Dame schedule this week and going to Virginia Tech. So we'll see how that plays out. And this discussion might be over in, in a few days. But if they, if the Irish, um, and you know, they've got it, they've, they've found some offense now with Ian Book, uh, taking over for Devin Wimbush at, at quarterback. He's clearly a better passer. Um, they've, they, the offense has, has come on quite a bit the last two weeks against Wake Forest and Stanford. So if that continues, uh, they get past Virginia Tech. You can look at that Syracuse game. That game's at Yankee Stadium, I believe, um, as uh, as as maybe the, the biggest hurdle left on the Notre Dame schedule. And that's a scary thought. If you're uh, if you're in the SEC East, say you're Georgia, um, you know some may laugh at this, but if you're if you're Kentucky, um, Kentucky probably doesn't have uh, realistic dreams of making the college football playoff. But they're undefeated, and they and they get to prove it on the field against Georgia still. So um, you know, let's just stick with the Georgia in this discussion. If you're Georgia. Georgia, um, and, and you feel like going undefeated through your regular season and then losing a tight game to Alabama at the end of the year warrants a college football playoff spot. You know, maybe it does, but it probably doesn't in a year where Notre Dame's 12 and 0. I just don't see, like I said, I just don't see the committee um, leaving out a 12 and 0 Notre Dame team. So it's 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 not just as something for. Um, people who follow Notre Dame to consider. It's something to consider if you're Washington and the Pac-12 already saddled with one loss in your attempt to go undefeated the rest of the way. That may not even be enough. Uh, if you're in the Big Ten and you're Michigan and you have one loss, you need to have – and it's two Notre Dame. Well, you, you, uh, you're you probably not getting in in that case over a 12-0 Notre Dame team that you lost to. So uh, if you're Ohio State, the margin for error is uh, is nil. 
as long as Notre Dame stays undefeated. If you're Oklahoma in the Big 12, you've got West Virginia still on the schedule. You've got Oklahoma State still on the schedule. Um, everybody around the country needs to uh, needs to pay attention to what Notre Dame is doing. And I'm sure there's a lot of people out there in those Power Five leagues who are uh, hoping that Virginia Tech can can knock the Irish uh, off this weekend. Yeah, it's interesting. It's playing out in a year where USC is down, Florida State is down, and they're both on Notre Dame's remaining schedule. So that kind of Mm-hmm. You know, clouds the waters even a little more there. All right, so let's transition using Notre Dame into uh, a discussion about this upcoming weekend's games. We'll start on the national scale before getting into the Big Ten. You mentioned Notre Dame's game at Virginia Tech. That'll be intriguing. We got the uh, Red River rivalry, and I'm proud of myself for mm-hmm. saying that without butchering it because I those three R those R's in that uh, <laughs> that game always trip me up. But um, we got that game, Texas and Oklahoma going head to head, and in the SEC, LSU and Florida going at it. So Mm-hmm. Which games intrigue you, uh, either between those games, uh, which intrigue you the most, or maybe I didn't mention uh, some that are standing out to you, but, but what are you looking for this weekend in week six of college football on a national well, we talked, Yeah, we talked about Notre Dame-Virginia Tech, and, and that would be getting more attention if if Virginia Tech didn't have the uh, the stunning loss on its schedule. And I think you can kind of throw that out because of the way that the Hokies bounced back against Duke last week. They're at home, um, so it's... Uh, you know, I, I think the real Virginia Tech team is the one that 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 we we saw a week ago, and and uh, you know, I, I, Justin Fuente and Bud Foster running that defense, they're going to have that team ready to play. Um, and, and you know, it, 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 considering the location, it's probably going to be a test unlike anything Notre Dame has seen. When you consider that the Stanford game and the Michigan game were were at home for the Irish, so I, I'm yeah, I'm definitely interested in that. Um, I've been I've been keeping a close eye on Texas uh, for the last few weeks because I I've expected that there, there's going to be a, a coming back to earth kind of moment that uh, and, you know at the beginning of the year I will say that I, I I thought that Texas had a real chance to be one of those teams that took a huge jump in year two under a new a, a, a new coaching regime and then they went and lost to Maryland in week 1 and i thought all right it's it's not going to happen for the longhorns this year and you know lo and behold they've they've looked great since then not great in the second half last week at Kansas State and that was a prime spot for uh, you know some of the uh, old demons to come back and bite the longhorns and they they made it out with a victory against uh, what i think is is not a very good Kansas State team so um, maybe you know my initial initial thought on Texas was right and they are ready to take a huge jump. So this is kind of the, the, uh, um, you know, the let's learn the truth moment about Texas in, uh, in Dallas this weekend against an Oklahoma team that I've seen in person. And I think when, when, when Kyler Murray is, is, is running that thing. And, and I mean, running that offense at a, at the pace that they, that they do it and connecting with, a couple of those receivers, Marquise Brown, um, you know, they've they've lost their top running back, um, Rodney Anderson, uh, early in the year. But th- that's still an extremely dangerous offense. Offense, in some ways, uh, Murray is is even more dangerous at the point that than than Baker Mayfield was a year ago, just because of his running ability and and the way that he can he can extend plays. May, Mayfield could do that too, but he wasn't a threat to go 40 or 50 yards necessarily on a play where Murray is. So they present a lot offensively that's really difficult for anybody to handle. I think Texas will, will have its hands full defensively in that game on Saturday, but um, you know I am really interested in that one. Um, 
yeah, LSU, Florida, as you mentioned, I've been, been uh, pleasantly surprised with what Florida has been able to accomplish in year one under, under Dan Mullen. You know, those first year coaches, we've talked about some of them here in this conversation were such a, you know, such a touchstone, such an, such an important part of, of the way this, this 2018 season was going to play out. And Mullen has been at the top at or near the top of the list for getting his team to, uh, to produce right away. So, and then another, another pleasant surprise nationally is, is LSU. Eddie Orgeron went into the season on the hot seat and, and that talk has, has obviously quieted down as they, uh, have beaten Miami and then beaten Auburn on the road. So uh, another really tough, uh, tough test here for, for the Tigers, but they're going to, if they're going to continue to just prove those doubters wrong week by week, here's another, uh, another important box to check uh, here in, uh, in week six. So, yeah, I would say I've got my eyes on those uh, most, most uh, of all, I'm going to uh, get the opportunity to see the number one team in the country this week. So I'm kind of excited about that. Uh, not going to be a good game in uh, in Fayetteville, Arkansas. But uh, after seeing Alabama in person on Saturday, I'll have seen Alabama, Georgia, and Oklahoma. So hopefully, we'll have some uh, observations and uh, a, a way to kind of compare and contrast those three teams that are all in the mix for the for the playoff, of course. So um, definitely not the game that's on everyone's radar, but it's on my radar because uh, I get to see Alabama uh, for the first time in in, uh, in 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 several years, actually, in in person. There you go, and. While it will most certainly be ugly on the field, I, from what I've heard, I, I think they have a good time in Fayetteville, and uh, the pig suey uh, crowd will, I'm sure, you know, give you some good people watching at the very least. They will, and I'm sure I'll get to hear lots of pig suey in, in, in pregame, and then it may quiet down once the, uh, <laughs> once the opening kickoff is, uh, is, uh, is booted. I don't think that uh, the way that Alabama has played this year, they just come out and smother people at the beginning, as you've seen. So not a real fun uh, fun thing to experience as a, as a fan if you're if you're in your own home stadium and that's happening to you on the other side. But of course, Nick Saban has his uh, his um, in his guard up this week. He's he's guarding against this being a trap game for the Tide, and and that's what you have to do if you're in Saban's spot. But it, it almost gets comical on a week by week basis to uh, to hear his wary comments because of course his team in, in this year I think even more than others on it from the offensive side they are just so dominant and you know they're 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 uh, watching them on TV is one thing, um, but being down there I want to make sure that I get down on the field before the game. And, and just be able to eyeball those guys. If it's anything like Georgia, and I expect it will be, if not even uh, you know more impressive, there's just a different look about those teams when you see them up close. I, I saw Georgia at Missouri a couple weeks ago, spent some time on the field in, in, the, in pregame with, uh, with the Bulldogs, just walking around and looking at the athletes that they have you know, essentially every position and, uh, you know, they don't look like a normal college football team. I'm, uh, I'm expecting that Alabama will look nothing like a normal college football team up close. Yeah. To that point, I get that same experience when we go around the preseason to all the campuses and all the practices in the big 10 and, you know, you go to Michigan, Penn state, Ohio state, and those dudes are mm-hmm. different compared to mm-hmm. what you see out of the rest of the school. So uh, point well taken there. And, Remember, Mitch, you got to write negative things about Alabama because uh, Nick Saban doesn't want any positive things, uh, any, right. any rat poison in the press. <laughs> right. I'll I'll, uh, I'll try to appease him on that. <laughs> I don't know how that's gonna how that's gonna work, but if if uh, I'll have no mercy uh, if Tua Tagovailoa throws an incomplete pass in the first quarter on Saturday. There you go. All right. Before I let you go, Mitch, uh, just want to get your thoughts on if anything. I, 
intrigues you out of the Big Ten this weekend? To be honest, uh, not a whole lot of sizzle in the schedule this weekend. But I, I want to I know if you uh, got your eye on any of those games in the in the Big Ten um, in Week Six. Well, Iowa Minnesota, I think, is an interesting one because it's a rivalry game. Because it's at Minnesota, um, I think it would be it would it's more likely to be a good game um, in Minneapolis than it would be if it was in Iowa City. Um, interested to see how uh, the Gophers, with an off week last week, bounce back from a, you know a real disappointment against Maryland to open Big Ten play. It looked like there were some some positive steps being uh, being taken uh, with PJ Fleck in this in this second year, um, and, and there still may well be. But you know, like Oklahoma, we talked about losing a. Uh, a top-notch running back. Minnesota is, is facing that same kind of challenge. And Northwestern, the same thing. Um, but Rodney Smith being out is, uh, is is just a hard one to deal with for the Gophers. So um, both of these teams are, are coming off of buys after after uh, really disappointing losses. And disappointing for different, different reasons. Disappointing for Iowa because the Hawkeyes had that game. Uh, they they seemed to have that game, and it was a night. It, it was night. It was at home, and uh, you know if Iowa wins that game over Wisconsin, there's uh, some some smooth sailing for a little bit on that on that Iowa schedule, um, and and maybe the inside track very well, maybe the inside track to the Big Ten West Championship. But that uh, of course isn't the way it turned out. And now you know how will uh, how will the Hawks respond in, in going up to. Uh, to Minneapolis, I'm I'm interested to see that. I'm interested to see, um, you know, the other one in the in the West with uh, Nebraska and Wisconsin. Is this the week where Nebraska at least shows some sign of turning turning a corner? I don't know. Um, I was I was uh, asked as I as I went into Memorial Stadium by some people last week. You know, is what did. What's my prediction? You know, do, do I think is this the week they're going to get it done? Is Frost going to get his first win? And you know, my my take on that is I'm I'm not really going to predict anything positive for this team until I see it actually happen once or twice on the field. So I'm not ready to say, despite some some talk out of Lincoln this week that the team has has started to take responsibility. I'm not ready to pr- really predict much of anything positive for Nebraska until I see it happen. And and was at Wisconsin is not a uh, you know the environment that you would expect for for a team to uh, all of a sudden wake up and and uh, come out of uh, you know what's just been a real struggle so um, interested to see it yes not ex- necessarily expecting it to be a competitive game and you know that's kind of the case when you go around the big ten on the rest of the schedule I don't think Maryland's going to go into Michigan and give them a huge scare Illinois Rutgers is just kind of yuck um same same thing as far as uh talking about not a real expectation for a close game in Columbus uh against Indiana um despite the Hoosiers four and one record I don't think they'll give Ohio State much of a challenge and then um that's uh I guess that's that about Michigan State Northwestern maybe that'll be a sneaky good game um but uh yeah it's um not not a real big week as far as uh great matchups on the field all right, well, we'll be watching regardless. And before I let you go, Mitch, uh, one last thing I like to do with my guests is uh, give them a chance to highlight maybe something that got your attention off the football field or something that was a little unique or you know heartwarming or something that uh, is what we label the B1G moment, the big moment of the week. And uh, I always start, uh, you know, kind of get the uh, – so I get you off the spot and allow you to – Think of a moment, if possible. But I will. I'll start with one that I saw this past week, 
And that was uh, Purdue student reporter Tyler Trent, who is battling an aggressive form of osteosarcoma, a form of cancer. And he's really struggling right now, and, and he's uh, unfortunately at his home resting and, and couldn't make it back to Purdue for uh, this weekend's this upcoming weekend's game. But he was visited by the Purdue football team this year, including or this week, including David Blau, Elijah Sindelar, and DJ Knox, and they came to his house and uh, lifted his spirits a little bit. So I don't know if you had anything off the football field, but that was one that I saw this weekend. Uh, you know, it was a nice heartwarming moment, and uh, best wishes to Tyler as he continues his fight. So if you have something. Great, but um, if not, we can we can wrap it up. I think that's a good moment. You know, I'll, I'll go back to something that we talked about um, when, in the game I was at in Lincoln, and, and this, of course, involves what was happening on the field. But and and, and you brought it up um, the uh, how fun it was to see Kurt and and, and Brenda Warner in the stands. Um, you know, I didn't get the chance while they were there on Saturday to go to go meet them and interview them. Um, but I think for a lot of people at Nebraska, you know, whether it's on the print side like myself or in TV, it's, it's going to be fun to, uh, to check in with them from time to time. You know, Kurt is a guy who's comfortable in the media, does a lot of NFL stuff. So I'm, I'm kind of uh, excited to be able to get his take down the road um, on, on what's happening with his son. And of course, around that program too, I'm sure he has a real, of course, has a real keen eye for, uh, for the sport. So, um, you know, I, I don't imagine they're going to want to hog much spotlight, Kurt and, and Brenda, but they're they're so well known around football, and it brings back a lot of uh, uh, memories of seeing the two of them when when uh, when Kurt was was doing great things with the Rams. So I think that that uh, presents a fun storyline for the rest of the year. Definitely will be fun to follow. Uh, a lot of great stuff, Mitch. We went for about forty five minutes here, and uh, definitely packed the episode with a ton of good insight, a ton of good information. And I really appreciate you taking some time and jumping on with me here today. Yeah, happy to do it. All right. Thanks so much to Mitch for joining me. Really appreciate getting his insight on a national level and also uh, his kind of on the ground insight into the Big Ten, especially being in Big Ten country in Nebraska. So shout out to Mitch. Always enjoy having ESPN talent on. And uh, you clearly see why he's at that level. Definitely some great insight from him. All right, moving on now to our weekly stat head segment with Harold Shelton. Listening back to this segment, I, I think we got a ton of interesting stats from Harold this week. Not that we don't usually, but there's a lot of uh, you know unique and valuable insight into what goes uh, on in the Big Ten, really, with you know why Ohio State continuously seems to get over the hump while Penn State can't, why Nebraska's struggling. Why Michigan State, Harold's alma mater is struggling. We get into all of it coming up here in just a moment on the Stat Hit segment. And instead of me previewing it, I'll let you listen to the real thing. Let's get into BTN Stat Head segment with researcher Harold Shelton. Very pleased to be joined once again by BTN researcher Harold Shelton after a big weekend in college football, big weekend in the Big Ten, especially when it comes to one game. That was the Penn State-Ohio State matchup that came down to a thrilling finish. So we'll get into that in just a moment. But first off, H, how are you holding up midway through the season here? I'm good. I was very glad that we only had five games last week so we could fully enjoy that instant classic that happened. And, you know, not as great of a slate this week, but these are the type of weeks where you see some crazy stuff happen. Yeah, and I'm glad you're you know kind of refreshed and recharged after that light weekend and then the heavy evening we had Saturday night. So let's get into that Penn State Ohio State matchup that Ohio State came back to win 27-26. They were down 
13 points in the fourth quarter, stormed back to win by one point, just like we saw a year ago in Columbus. They kind of repeated that narrative in Happy Valley. So let's just start off on, on what you saw numbers-wise out of both teams. What jumped out at you? Um, you know, obviously Penn State, like we said, jumped out to a lead, couldn't hold it. How do you think uh, the Buckeyes got it done once again? Uh, well, you could just tell they're the type of team that makes these types of plays in these games. You know, under Urban, they are 20-3 and three in one-possession games, which is by far the best mark in the nation. Uh, conversely, Penn State, not so great in these types of situations. Their last four losses have been by a combined eight points. They've had the, the lead in the fourth quarter in all of them. And that's part of the reason why, you know, they're looking up at Ohio State the last couple of years. Sure. And before we get into what happened in the fourth quarter, it's kind of set up how the game played out. What did Penn State do to neutralize Ohio State in those first three quarters? What did Ohio State struggle with en route to that double-digit deficit heading into the fourth? Yeah, well, it seemed like, you know, everybody was extremely high on Dwayne Haskins and how great he's played. But if you noticed in those first four games – he really had all day to throw. Like there was no nobody who was at his feet. He wasn't rushed. He wasn't flush from the pocket. He was able to just kind of sit back and you know have target practice pretty much. I mean TCU put a little bit of pressure on him, but not like what Penn State did. I mean Penn State sent pressure pretty much the entire game. You know they were able to stop the run, and so when they were able to do that, they were able to pin their ears back. And you could tell they they rushed Haskins. He wasn't as comfortable. They were hitting him. And, you know, to Haskins' credit, he was able to respond in that last frame. So was it more about adjustments that Ohio State made, do you think, or was it about Penn State getting away from what they had success with till the fourth quarter, really? I thought offensively Ohio State made adjustments. It was a lot of bubble screens, quick screens. You know, J.K. Dobbins got a touchdown on a screen pass. You know, when they were pinned up, you know, pinned against their uh, their end zone at the four-yard line, it was a lot of screen plays. It was Paris Campbell. It was K.J. Hill. You know, they just got the ball out in space to their receivers. Um, one of the more underrated things about Ohio State's program is their receivers' ability to block downfield. Sure. So those big plays that you see happen, a lot of times happen because there's, they do so well blocking downfield. We saw Paris Campbell take a screen against TCU two weeks ago. We saw K.J. Hill do the same thing against Penn State. So I thought it was just a, a great adjustment and great game plan by Ryan Day once they got down by 12. Right, I'm glad you brought up kind of the strategy of throwing a lot of bubble screens and, and, you know, letting the offense play out more horizontally rather than vertically because on social media, as we monitor throughout these games, I saw a lot of fans, you know, either whether it was Penn State fans mocking Haskins or Ohio State fans expressing concern that, you know, Haskins wasn't looking great throwing downfield in the first half and the first three quarters of that game. But I wanted your thoughts on if that was more of a design by Ohio State to, uh, you know, limit his verticality, get it in space to those receivers, and if you have any concerns about Haskins' ability to throw down the field going forward. I thought Penn State forced their hand. Um, I was very surprised. I thought Ohio State would have the advantage at the line of scrimmage when it came to their offensive line against Penn State's front seven. I thought for most of the game, Penn State actually had the advantage I definitely didn't expect that to happen. But to Ohio State's credit, they I think they realized it at a certain point, and so they went to 
throwing bubble screens, just getting the, getting the ball to their athletes in space. They have the best athletes on the field pretty much every time they take the field. So I thought that was more of just an adjustment to what Penn State was doing. I think when Haskins has time to throw, he does just fine. He was throwing just fine in the first half. He had some drops by his receivers. Uh, the only interception he threw was a deflection off of his teammate. and Hit him know, right in the hands. Hit him yeah. right in the hands. So I think Haskins will be fine. I thought his ability to rebound after struggling for a half or so, should, that shouldn't be lost. How about the all-KJ game? KJ Hamler had some unbelievable speed, you know, that one 90-plus yard play where he broke off. away. Yeah, that dude was gone. And KJ Hill had a big play as well. The uh, I believe that's a touchdown to yep. win the game, right? Yeah, so, you know. I don't know what it was about that, but that's got to be the, the biggest game by KJ's in Big Ten history. I would think so. And then you had J.K., who also right. had a touchdown. So a lot of K's and J's in this one. But seriously, you look back, and that 96-yard drive could define their season to a degree. I mean, they were backed up, you said, like they're uh, inside their own five. Yep. And it, they didn't really break a sweat. I mean, they just kind of marched down the field, got guys in space, and as I mentioned, it could be a defining moment in their season. Oh, yeah, no doubt. I mean, this was by far their biggest hurdle for the next five or six weeks. Uh, so the fact that they were able to get through that and have the TCU win, I mean, those are two big wins away from Columbus that they could have on their resume. And now the schedule gets lighter. Guys can have a chance to get healthy. You know, you get Indiana and Minnesota coming up at home. You know, the game in West Lafayette at the end of the month could be a little tricky. But they won't play a ranked team again until they play Michigan State in mid-November. And who knows what the Spartans will be at that point. Right. And before moving on, I do want to talk a little bit about Penn State. First of all, Trace McSorley had a huge game, put up some numbers that uh, I believe set Penn State records, correct? Was that a yardage record? Yes, total offense set the record for that. He was up near close to 500, wasn't he? Yeah, it was at 461, I believe was the number. Um, The the more And he was the storyline, really. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. He was the better quarterback in this game. Uh, he is 175 rushing yards from a quarterback. I mean, I mean, you saw him take off down the sideline for 50 yards. He was going in between the tackles. You know, he was breaking tackles. Uh, I think it was the second most yards by a Penn State quarterback ever and the most since 1913. Wow. Which goes to show you, like, if there's a quarterback that you want with the ball in his hands, it would be him. Unfortunately for Penn State, on the most crucial play of the game, the ball was not in his hands, which you know I'm sure we'll get into. Sure. Yeah, and McSorley was a national story. He's trending, and you had you know, Ohio State former players tweeting during the game, this guy's the truth, he's you know Heisman contender, and, and then that script flipped toward the NBA. Let's get into James Franklin, some of the heat he's taken – in this past few days following not only that fourth and five play call where they ran the ball to get out of McSorley's hands, um, but some of the comments that he made after the game about how he was saying, you know, the Penn State program's great, but we're not elite yet, and he's going to do everything he can to get it to that level. What do you think the crux of those comments, what do you think is at the, you know, at the heart of those comments, and do you think he has a point? Are they accurate? Uh, I think he does have a point, and to, to his credit, when he took over, the scholarship situation, everything was a mess. You know, he took them from average to good to great. And now it's that next level, which is the hardest level to get to, which is elite. He's been harping on it since media day, and he does have a point. I mean, he's 1-4 and four now against Urban, and he sh- he could slash should be 4-1. Sure. I mean, you got two blown fourth quarter leads, 
and you had another game to go double overtime that you didn't win. You know, you have the Michigan State loss last year in which you were favored. You know, you had the Rose Bowl loss to USC. So, I mean, there are opportunities out there where if they win two or three of those four games, they're looked at completely different. But unfortunately, they've, been, they've fallen short in some of those games. Uh, he's only 4-10 and ten against ranked opponents since he's been there. And so, you know, they, they've done a great job becoming a top 10 and 15 program, but they're trying to be a top 5 program. And when you lose games the way that they've lost the last two years, I can see where his angst comes from. Right. You can definitely get a sense of that urgency, and I agree that it's definitely warranted. All right, we'll move on now. Uh, great game, obviously, but got to get some other teams here. Northwestern. Actually, before we move on, I do want to point out that uh, before I forget that I loved how Dwayne Haskins and Sharif Miller not only had a Twitter beef before the game where Haskins called out Miller's comments about Haskins, you know, being soft or going down or whatever, they took the Twitter fingers to trigger fingers on the field, got into a little tussle. Haskins kind of tossed them a little bit and then dapped it up after the game. So I, I don't know if you saw that, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, that. I, I thought that was... I mean, the fact that that actually played out that way, once the tweet came out earlier that day and you see them going at it on the field <laughs> that it, night, that was pretty It cool. really came full circle. Yeah, it was it really the, did. It was the football um, version of, you know, let's, let's meet up, meet me in Temecula, if you know that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, and then they, you know, I guess squashed it at the end, so that was fun. Yeah. All right, moving on for good now. Um, let's talk a little bit about what else happened across the Big Ten. Like you said, it was kind of a light slate, but... Had some intrigue in the Michigan-Northwestern game. Northwestern jumped out to a 17-0 lead. And for Michigan fans, I'm sure it was kind of here we go again with Michigan letting them down in, I guess, what kind of constitutes a big game. It was uh, you know, it was a Fox game. It was mid-afternoon, and it was some pressure on them. Michigan ultimately came back to win 20-0. So what do you take away from that game? Is it more about Northwestern blowing that 17-0 lead? Is it about Michigan still being kind of uncertain? How did that game play out and what are your thoughts uh, I still say it's more about Michigan being uncertain I mean they looked so great the last or the previous three games when not granted they were at home in all three of those games but they're averaging 50 they're winning by close to 40 points a game and you think alright this Michigan offense is turning the corner alright they're going to go on the road against a, a beatable team that's struggling let's see how they do they immediately fall down 17 nothing. You know, they fell behind, you know, was it, I believe it was 21-3 against Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. So when they go on the road, that offense doesn't seem to travel. Now, to their credit, they didn't go in the tank. You know, they allowed 57 yards on Northwestern's final nine drives of the game. Wow. So it took – so the defense was able to keep them in the game, and once the offense started to go – you could tell that they were the much better team, and it was just only a matter of time before they took the lead over, and they did. Yeah, I think you got to give a little credit to Northwestern for sure, just responding after the tough loss of Jeremy Larkin. Yep, no doubt. And his career-ending injury, you know, after losing to Akron and Duke, they responded and were more than competitive and honestly could have won that game. It just didn't work out. But it's good to see them showing signs of life for sure after difficult month really of yeah, September. Coach definitely had him ready to play after the bye week. Thought the, the game plan was really good for those first uh, 20 minutes or so, but the offense kind of went to sleep after that. Alright, real quick, I always want to talk Michigan State with you since you're Michigan State alum. One of your quick thoughts on Sparty, if any concerns were alleviated for you in their, I know you've had some concerns about the run game in their win over Central Michigan. It wasn't necessarily a you know dominating performance, but they did win 
by double digits, uh, and then which concerns if if they weren't alleviated, which carried over into you know now really the middle of the season as we look towards the home stretch here. Uh, this might just be who they are right now, um, and if that is the case, then it's going to be even more on Brian Lewerke. I think last year he was able to run the ball a lot and. I'd say through November, he was probably their best ball carrier. Uh, it looks like that's going to have to be the case again. He didn't really run it much the first three games. Uh, he certainly pulled it down a few times and was able to use his legs to create uh, against Central Michigan. That's definitely going to be something he's going to have to do this month when they play Northwestern and Penn State and Michigan because the run game just doesn't seem to it's not it doesn't seem like it's going to be a big factor for Michigan State winning games this year. Uh Darius Jefferson played pretty well, but again, there's no big plays coming from it. I think their longest run was 15 yards on the day. So this is just kind of who they are. The issue with that is Lawerke has a tendency to go hero ball. And so ball security has been a big issue through another pick in the end zone last week. He's already got seven turnovers. He had nine all of last year. So I think Lewerke knows that he has to be the guy for them to be a difference maker. But when that's the case, sometimes he might force the issue, and that could result in a loss against a better team. Yeah, Cody White looks like he'll be out for an extended period yeah, of time. And, I, and that's the other thing. Injuries have been a big issue. Yeah, when's LJ Scott coming back? What's his deal? <laughs> we keep hearing that he's day-to-day, but he's missed the last two games. I wasn't surprised he missed this one. I feel I felt like guys who were kind of banged up could miss last week, figuring that they would be able to win that game and kind of save them for the meat of this October schedule. So hopefully, you know, the Daryl Stewart's and Jalen Naylor's and L.J. Scott's and Kevin Jarvis's are ready to play this week. Um, they were all held out last week. So with Cody White being out, they're going to need as much uh, firepower as possible. All right, so before looking ahead to another light Schedule of games in week six. I wanted to touch on the Purdue Nebraska game, and Nebraska is definitely the most talked about 0 4 team in the country. I think, in all seriousness, it's a credit to their fan base, the investment that they pour into that program, and the, the passion they have. And also, the comments that Scott Frost continues to make about, you know, maybe a, a lack of buy in from some of his guys, the frustrations that he's had. He pointed out this week players were dancing on the sidelines before kickoff. He said they look like they love losing. find it all very interesting as he kind of builds this thing from scratch. Uh, but first, let's talk about the winners of that game, Purdue. Purdue has found their quarterback in David Blau. Another great game out of him. How do you think he's been able to turn it on really late in his career here after not even knowing he was going to get the starting job this season? Uh, well, I think having Rondell Moore certainly helps. Can't hurt. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, now they have a guy that other teams have to game plan for. And I think once that happens, they have other weapons that have, you know, one-on-one coverage or you got really good tight ends that can take advantage of some linebackers. You know, Bryson Hopkins finally got involved. So I think they've already had six different 100-yard uh, games from uh, a wide receiver or a tight end this year. They only have four all of last year. So that just goes to show you the Rondell Moore impact. Uh, I think also – Mentally, I think he's in a good place knowing that he's the guy. Like He doesn't have to split time with Cindelar anymore. It's not, oh, if I make this bad throw, if I fumble, if I throw a pick, then I'm going to be pulled. I wonder if all of this happened once Cindelar got hurt in practice the week of the Missouri game. 
because at that point we didn't know who was going to be the starter. Once he got hurt, uh, Jeff Brom's hand was pretty much forced, and Blau has taken off ever since, and he's clearly been the guy. And I wonder if just knowing that he's the guy, it's his show to run, if that just gives him you know, so much confidence knowing that you know, it's his ship. Yeah, it's a good point. And on the flip side result of that game, talking about Nebraska, all their records, you know, go back now, first 0-4 start since like World War Two or whatever, you know, as a numbers guy, I'm sure that's interesting to you. But I just want to get your thoughts on the overall way this has played out with the rainout game and then the close loss to a good team in Colorado and then how it's just kind of derailed from there and their defense hasn't been able to stop anybody and Martinez you don't know if he's 100% still a quarterback just what are your impressions of how the program continues to sputter especially with Frost you know evaluation of the program being pretty public as opposed to uh, a lot of other coaches that might not give you as much at the podium. Uh, so how long is this pot? <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna have to we're gonna have to get to next with this upcoming week soon. So let's let's get your elevator speech on it. Yeah. So I mean, you know, we've talked about the the start, but you wonder if the Akron game doesn't get canceled and they win that game, and they get all of those first game mistakes out of the way, then they play Colorado. You know, it was, it was, that was a close loss as it was, and it was their opener. And we find we find out Colorado's a good team. They're in the top twenty five now. They, probably could have won that you know martinez gets hurt so if he doesn't get hurt maybe they beat troy right, right. and the whole thing looks different but it didn't happen that way what we see now is a 0-4 team we see a team that still can't stop anybody you know five straight conference games where they've allowed at least 40 points and i think you know he has a great point about the lack of discipline i mean they're one of two teams in the country that's had at least 10 penalties in every game this year and, you know, they just – anytime they get a stop, it's a penalty. You know, they get interception, it's a penalty. So they continue to shoot themselves in the foot in addition to not having all of the talent there. Um, and I'm going to try to segue you here. So it's fitting that they're playing Wisconsin this week. Yep. Because when they played them two years ago, they were 7-0. and They were in the top ten. They were leading the division. They went to OT in Madison. They lost that game. And they're six and sixteen since wow. that game, so it's kind of fitting that that loss in Madison two years ago has kind of sent them on this spiral. Wow, well, that's why I have you here, H. You got all the stats. You know, you are the stat head after all. And I know you got to get out of here soon to a meeting, so we'll be quick. We've talked about twenty minutes about last weekend, and uh, I don't think we wasted any seconds or moments in there. It's very, uh, very good stuff. But let's look at this slate this weekend coming up. Does anything intrigue you? Because honestly, looking at it. Not a whole lot there. Um, I'm curious to see between Illinois and Rutgers who gets their first Big Ten win. That's just personally uh, one of my intriguing matchups. But uh, anything else intrigue you? I mean, Ohio State's got Indiana. You mentioned that Wisconsin-Nebraska matchup. Northwestern I think Michigan State I think is probably the most interesting matchup between teams that are underperforming their expectations this year. And then Maryland at Michigan. Uh, Maryland always has that explosive firepower in Michigan always demands uh, eyeballs. So what are you looking at this weekend as we head into week six? Uh, a little bit of Ohio State and Indiana, a little bit of Michigan State Northwestern. Uh, you know, Indiana, again, it's one of those things, hey, you're 4-1, that's great, but now you're playing the big boys of the division. Got a scare from Rutgers last weekend. Got a scare from Rutgers last weekend. You've lost 23 straight times to Ohio State. A lot of those games have been close recently. Yep. 
but you still haven't been able to get over the hump, which has been the issue in general with them. Um, they are one in fifty-seven all time against AP top five teams. Wow! So this would be a nice win if they could potentially get it, but obviously that's going to be a very tall task. Uh, Michigan State Northwestern. I mean, Northwestern's kind of had their number recently. I mean, you know, they played the great game last year in Triple OT. Clayton Thorson has been great the last two years against them. I remember the last time they played in East Lansing, Northwestern scored 54 points, which is the most Michigan State has ever allowed at Spartan Stadium. So as a Michigan State fan, I'm definitely a little nervous about this game. For whatever reason, the the Cats have had D'Antonio's number recently, and they've had some some battles since uh, D'Antonio and Fitz have both been there. So looking forward to seeing how that one plays out. All right, great discussion as always, H. I'll let you get out of here. Definitely, uh, you know, regardless of the, the lineup this week, we'll both be watching. We'll be back here next week to talk about it. So appreciate you coming back. No problem. All right, thanks once again to Mitch and Harold for joining me. Always appreciate Harold's insight. Going a little longer because, I mean, I feel like the discussion with Harold flow really well. It's a good time, and he has always a lot of uh, valuable opinions and cold hard numbers to back them up. So I appreciate getting his uh, valuable insight as always. Uh, Mitch, once again, was great with ESPN.com. Enjoyed having him on as a national perspective. We'll continue to do this each week on the Take 10 Podcast, bringing in a national guest to help make sense of the week that was in college football and look ahead to the upcoming weekend. And thanks once again to everyone out there for listening, for following along. Hopefully, you know, this is becoming a regular rhythm for you in this college football season. It's been in your playlist queue. Looking forward to it. Uh, we try to get out every Wednesday during college football season to stay relevant, stay current with what happened the previous weekend and to give it enough time to preview the upcoming weekend. And it's just a a good landing spot, I think, on Wednesdays for these episodes. So appreciate everyone tuning in. Got to give a shout out to my producer, Julie Bronder, who has filled in admirably for Wes White while he's on paternity leave. And a shout out to another assistant producer, Colleen Degnan, who has been a big help as well. So thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to the producers and the guests as always. And we'll be right back here same time next week on the Take 10 podcast. So enjoy this weekend's games and we'll talk to you soon.